Welcome to the podcast and listeners. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Brian! Hey, thanks, Dan. Yeah, this is the fourth time I've had a birthday here on the podcast. I'm now 34 years old, 100,010 in binary. Getting up there. Wow. We're not too far from a power of two year not like our age but like actual year number 2048 do you think we'll still be recording the pod in 2048 we'll be like statler and waldorf (laughs) (laughs) the show will have looped back around we'll discuss our previous episodes and, and heckle ourselves oh yeah that is a level of meta i'm not ready for but maybe by 2048 so what are some of your favorite birthday-related media, Brian? That's a great question. So I'm actually going to post some deep-cut birthday songs on our Discord, so listeners, you should join that. One I was just introduced to this year is by Jimmy Buffett. It's called Another Trip Around the Sun. But Weird Al actually has one, which is going to be relevant. What else? The Beatles have got one, obviously. I guess that's not such a deep cut. Beatles are a pretty popular band. But I just like when groups will do a birthday song that is different from Happy Birthday. Although I am also very much in favor of the movement to claim Happy Birthday as a part of our common heritage and not something that can be copyrighted. Yeah. Though for a long time, that's the reason you always saw him singing... For he's a jolly good fellow in movies. Oh, interesting. Because I believe the Warner Studio claimed copyright to the Happy Birthday song, but I think more recently that's ki- they've kind of loosened the reins. You can never forget Sal's birthday. Is that what it's called? I love Sal's birthday. As performed by you and your brother in the Rock of Fire episode, which was, I think, your first birthday episode, right, Brian? That's right. So in the lead up to recording today, I've played back my previous birthday episode, specifically the Rockafire explosion episode about the animatronic band that played at Chuck E. Cheese back in the day, as well as from last year, our Henry's Kitchen and Feeders episode, where he sings the deep cut birthday song, Nobody's Birthday But Mine. Another great one. And he also... uh skipped out on our date with us date on the pod blown off by henry phillips wow i had my sushi all ready to go (laughs) oh yeah um i read this book called the hate you give and it's it's quite a good book it's about this young black woman who encounters racism but she talks about how apparently at black birthday parties and this is what she said in the book. I don't know how generally true this is, 
apparently at black birthday parties, you don't sing the happy birthday we know. You sing the Stevie Wonder version of happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Which is another good one. Okay. That reminds me on my brother's radio show. They discussed whether they drink hot chocolate at Kwanzaa parties. And my brother said he was unsure. He's never been more unsure. <laughs> never been more. That's good. They should do, instead of Christmas albums, they should do birthday albums. <laughs> Actually, just because we're on the subject, on the Free Music Archive, which is this compendium of, like, Creative Commons licensed tracks that people post so that you can use them in your non-commercial projects. A lot of videographers draw on that resource, but they put together an album of, okay, everybody make a birthday song so that people can use it without running into trouble using Happy Birthday. Nice. And most are mediocre. I mean, I guess that you get what you pay for. <laughs> but there are some good ones out there. What about you, Dan? Any other beyond um, Stevie Wonder, like you mentioned? No, not necessarily songs, but, but media that makes you think birthday. Well, what I had in mind is... I don't use Facebook as much as I used to, but for years and years, whenever it was a sibling's birthday, I would choose one of the maybe 10 terrific clips from The Simpsons related to birthdays and post a YouTube link to their Facebook page on their birthday. My all-time favorite might be, I think they go to a, it's a Chuck E. Cheese type place and they sing... You're the birthday, you're the birthday, you're the birthday, boy or girl, which always <laughs> makes me laugh. <laughs> and of course, sung by an animatronic band. Yeah, and then they, like it catches on fire and he has to put it out with the fire extinguisher. It's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, just one or two others. Mr. Rogers actually has a good birthday song, so I'll definitely post that one. It's like, happy birthday, happy birthday, dear friend, we sing to you. Gonna spin that. Also, of course, there's It's Potty Time, centers on a birthday party. Oh, man. Today is Bobby's birthday. He turns four. He is growing <laughs> up now more and more. Today is uh, Brian's birthday. He's turning 34. Oh, so good. You know, randomly... I I wrote like a short review of that on Letterboxd and then I transplanted that and added a paragraph or two and some YouTube clips and put it on my reviews website. And I also linked to our podcast episode there. And that's like the third most visited review on my website since it <laughs> launched. <laughs> what did you score It's Potty Time on your website? I think whatever I did on the podcast episode, which I think is a four out of eight. Cool. Yep, so I went over to MAGFest on the actual day. We're recording just after my real deal birthday. But it's always good to stretch it a little bit. Is that the one we went to a few years ago together? Or was that a different one? You came to AwesomeCon. Okay, gotcha. In D.C. MAGFest is in National Harbor. It usually happens in January. This is the first year it actually happened on my birthday, so I thought I should go over there. Nice. And then Awesome Con is in the summer in DC. But because Dan, for his last birthday episode in June, assigned the movie that topped his top 100 films countdown, That Thing You Do, 
I have decided to kind of mirror that. It's like poetry, they rhyme. I am going to talk about UHF, the sole starring vehicle from Weird Al Yankovic from 1989. So Dan, what had been your familiarity with this movie? Prior to this past week, I had seen the movie once before. It was sometime around college or maybe shortly after college. It may have been after you picked it as your number one movie for the first time. Or maybe I saw it on like the proto list that you made back around, what, 2007 or something like that, and put it on my to-watch list. I don't think I would have seen it without your recommendation, but I don't know. I was discovering a lot of movies back in those days. And I remembered liking it. It's a silly movie, but I knew I was going to watch it again at some point, and this was my chance. It's definitely a silly movie. It's a scattershot movie. There's a lot of things thrown at the wall in UHF. Definitely. But I was also thinking about it because I knew that the reason you picked it is because I picked that thing you do, which is, of course, about a one-hit wonder rock and roll band in the late 60s that kind of have a rise and then a fall and everybody's learned a little bit. And there's actually more in common with UHF than I would have thought. And less about the story itself, although there's some of that because it's about the making of a thing, as we'll talk about, a, an art to share with the world, kind of unexpectedly rising to popularity. And, and we'll tease that out, of course. But just the way that that thing you do was kind of like a passion project first film for Tom Hanks that he kind of poured all these ideas, these decades worth of, you know, fascination with 60s and 70s culture and the rock and roll landscape and just all these little ideas he had into one film as a, a thing where he left nothing behind. And I feel like UHF has that same spirit. Somebody throwing everything they have, shooting their one shot. Not that Tom Hanks only had one shot, but you, you know what I mean? Just bringing it all there in their first effort. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing where they broke the mold after this. And kind of by necessity, because it wasn't a box office hit. But Weird Al was on the rise as a musician, had some, you know, billboard charting hits with his parody stuff. And so Orion Pictures gave him the chance to helm a movie. And it was directed by his band manager, Jay Levy. So very much like a project that comes from the mind of Al almost in the way that like 5,000 fingers came from Dr. Seuss, even though he's not the director, he's like the creative impetus. And in both cases, fairly young and fairly early before they had entered legend status, I would say. We talked about that with 5,000 fingers of Dr. T that that was like early before he had made, I think the cat in the hat. So before he had like really made huge waves that he got to make that film. Right. And similarly, 1989, I mean, you know, he had done a handful of albums, but part of what's been great about Weird Al is just his longevity and the fact that he kind of got more and more popular rather than less and less popular as he, his reign got longer and longer, you know? Right. One of the only musical performers to have top 40 hits in like four or maybe five different decades it's like him and madonna and yeah. that's pretty much it <laughs> and so in the lead up to this week i also watched weird that parody biopic starring daniel radcliffe as weird al mm -hmm. 
and it was funny. It was a little hit or miss. I mean, I wanted to actually know the story. I wanted to know what his real life was. Uh, he does have an autobiography. Do you have his autobiography? I do not. I should read that. Yeah. I think that one has a does a little bit of the the weird thing, but I think that one's probably more based on his real life, whereas weird is just totally and utterly fabricated. I, I also rewatched weird this week just for kicks. Right. But it, in weird, it very much plays up that Weird Al and Madonna are like twin flames, which I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to dive a little bit into how and why I connected with this movie UHF. So my first Weird Al album was Running With Scissors in 1999. I heard a friend play it on, like, the car radio. And then it was the first CD that I bought with my own money. Then in pretty quick succession, I got the Running With Scissors album and In 3D, which is one of his earliest albums, as, like, birthday and Christmas presents. My family got our first DVD player in... December of 2001. So the very first DVD that we had was Shrek. And I bought just after that the like collector's edition of Monty Python and the Holy Grail for a party to screen. The release date listed for UHF, the DVD, it says June of 2002. So I guess that tracks. But pretty early on, I saw this one on the rack. Didn't know anything about it other than it had Weird Al front and center on the cover. And so I decided to pick it up. Yeah, this is fairly early in the DVD mass adoption, I would say. Like when it was a big deal that every movie was getting a DVD release and that you could have all these special features. So you lent me the Blu-ray, Brian, because I had gotten you the Blu-ray for either your birthday or Christmas a few years ago. And... You lent it back to me as a kind of aside. I couldn't find my computer's USB Blu-ray player, which is normally how I watch Blu-rays. But I recently cleaned up my office and I must have misplaced it because I couldn't find it. And so I had to do this whole contraption to watch it in my office with the Blu-ray and not in like the family room where the girls were playing or whatever. And I so I, I brought... I had... To, I brought my Blu-ray player upstairs to my office and then it just like, it was a comedy of errors. Like I didn't have the right cord. So I had to go search for a cord and then the monitor I had didn't play sound. So I had to go find another monitor to play it. And finally I was able to watch a Blu-ray. If I had just gotten the DVD, I could have just done it with my normal DVD player, but the Blu-ray was a little bit more of a challenge, but I did finally get it. And I, I, um, I watched a lot of the bonus features on it and you can tell that he was, he being Weird Al was swept away with like the power of being able to get his movie out and add all these bonus features and stuff. So how much time have you spent with the bonus features on this, Brian? Oh, back in the day, a lot. Yeah. So all of these early DVDs that I got were just loaded with features. Shrek especially was an abundance of riches. Like it had like its own editing app on the DVD and like a pinball game and like glitches, like a, a reel of weird things that happened while they were animating it, like 
messed up CGI and as as kind of a sort of blooper reel. And of course, the Monty Python had a ton of stuff. There were like Lego short films on there and, you know, the extended cut of the movie and the commentary. But UHF, the DVD is no slouch. I love the deleted scenes reel, which I specifically asked you to watch, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But there's like a 20-minute cut of just all these things that were dropped from the movie. Little little bits and pieces that add some context. And one of the things I enjoyed about this clip, this reel, is... Well, first of all, I don't the one on the Blu-ray, I don't know if it's identical to the one on the DVD, but he talks about how... And maybe this was, he mentioned it in the commentary, or maybe it was at the start of the deleted scenes. I'm not sure. But he mentions that because this movie was made in 1989, they didn't have the deleted scenes saved anywhere. And so he just had them on his VHS, his own personal copy of the VHS. So he sent that in to get added to the DVD. And then he like records snippets of him talking about the deleted scenes which I have seen in movies before where like the director or someone introduces the deleted scenes, but Weird Al does it where he's making fun of the deleted scenes and why were they were so stupid and had to get cut. And it's very funny. You know why these scenes were deleted? Because they suck. <laughs> Another thing he talked about was how, because this movie was a little bit of a cult hit before it came out on DVD, it was actually a collector's item to own a VHS copy of it. And it was like a hot commodity on eBay um, to snag a VHS copy of UHF. But there was a lot of movies like that where before the DVD wave, I feel like, you know, some people kind of romanticize the lost era of VHSs, but DVD really has been an explosion of accessibilities of movies. And, you know, post DVD, of course, the last 20 years, now almost everything's on digital. But yeah, I, I did think that 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 was kind of interesting. Like, I could maybe you'd never would have seen this movie if it had never been a, a DVD release, Brian. Probably so. Or you would have seen it like now when you're like, oh, did you know Weird Al made a movie? Let's go track that thing down or something. You know, right. I would have been looking at the filmography and, and checked it out as a curiosity and, and not had it presented on a pedestal in my face. But. I would say it's had an impact on my life. I guess I, it connected with me at the right time, as you said. Like, maybe some of the shine has worn off as I've seen it over and over and over again. But I still cling to something in this movie. And we'll talk as we get into the recap about why that might be. But... This was definitely influential on my decision to make a public access TV show. Like, it's at the crux of, of that drive. I can definitely see that. The same sort of just make something weird and, and get it out there. Right. A little bit more about my connection to Weird Al. So I did go and see him in concert in 2008, my senior year of high school. My friend, as like a graduation present from his parents, got two tickets to a Weird Al concert, and he took me. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll take that. That's awesome. And then, I don't remember if I saw him at some other point in between, but in 2019, so not that long ago, I saw him again at Wolf Trap for his 
Strings Attached tour, Weird Al Strings Attached, where he was accompanied by the National Symphony Orchestra. Oh, wow. So that was pretty crazy. And that same year, actually, where I found out that that tour was even happening was he came to Awesome Con in 2019. And so I've got pictures meeting Weird Al at Awesome Con. I had him sign my discography of Weird Al. Around that time, he released a complete set of his albums. So it was like 14 records or CDs in an accordion case. So I've got an autographed set of those discs. That's awesome. And especially cool that you were, you like brought it to him to sign. Like I have some signed things that I bought already signed and that is cool, but it doesn't have quite the same charm as you actually getting the thing signed. That's true. I also had James Rolfe sign my power glove. That was a different year. (laughs) There's a couple other times that Weird Al has dabbled in different media than just music. And none of it quite matches up to this movie for me. But like he briefly had like a Saturday morning TV show called The Weird Al Show. Which is kind of weird. I feel like it was hampered some by the requirement to earn that like educational informational tag in the corner that so many tv shows for kids back in the day had to have so it's like there's always some moral or something that feels shoehorned in but i respect that he's tried different things and pops up all over the place he makes a ton of cameos in various shows especially animated shows like we mentioned, he was in Gravity Falls for an episode. He he had a prominent arc in the recent My Little Pony show. Like, he arguably had the most prominent romantic arc, which was unexpected. I read a little bit about that recently. So my daughters are really into My Little Pony. And there's like a lot of Weird Al re- references to in My Little Pony stuff. I don't spend a lot of time because I know it's a deep, dark hole online with my little pony stuff but um i saw this explained basically he appeared as like a one episode character and then got shipped with i think was it pinkie pie one of the ponies he ends up married to pinkie pie at the end of the show exactly and it became because he got shipped so much the creators basically wrote him in as the the end game for pinkie pie right i was blown away because i mean of course that was the ship in my head (laughs) <laughs> uh, because Pinkie Pie is like the funny random pony. And then the episode that introduces Weird Al, he was a rival to Pinkie Pie. And like is trying to corner the, the party throwing market. And they build up this antagonism between them. But then at the end, he reveals he was only trying to impress Pinkie Pie. And it's like, oh my gosh, there's there's drama here. One of my favorite kids book authors is named Sandra Boynton and her trademark is she makes these board books, which are like for really young kids, the kind of thick cardboard paper type books. And they all feature animals 
and usually have like rhymes and sometimes have associated songs with them. And she also writes her own song. She's made like some albums that are kind of silly in the Weird Al style, but less food and pop culture type stuff, more like the kind of humor that would you would play for a younger elementary schooler. And it turns out that she and Weird Al are like best friends. And so I always like that. That like if, if that would be a great group to be good friends with, I feel like. I feel like he's someone who would be fun to be friends with. Because I also heard he's really nice. He's also a vegetarian like me. That's true. And I'll bet you're right. He posts these short little jokey videos to YouTube that are just all kinds of things. Like he'll make fun of the like 15 items or less at the grocery store. He's like, it should be fewer. Or he's just, it's all these like five second, like proto Vine or TikTok things. And they, they tend to be pretty funny. And there's one where he's like feeding a giraffe. It's just always like a little, little ray of sunshine. He has a pinball machine now too, which I think is cool. I haven't actually encountered one, but on his YouTube channel, he posted a trailer for his pinball machine. I've always been sad that Count Gauntley's Horrors from the Public Domain didn't wasn't like a breakout national success. But I think the reason I'm most sad about that is because we never got a Count Gauntley pinball machine, except in the animated video that you made. Right. So I took an animation class a semester or so back, and that was my project, was the promo video for the Gauntley pinball machine, which is something I've always kind of had in my head. I think it plays to themes that are commonly seen in popular pinball machines. There are so many horror pinball machines. You got the Adams Family, the Twilight Zone. Elvira has three pinball machines at this point, Dan. Oh my goodness. She keeps returning to the form. But before we let the runtime of this episode get away from us, let's dive into UHF from 1989. So the overall arc of this movie is Weird Al takes over a UHF TV station and he becomes the darling of his community by just airing bonkers TV programs that he comes up with. So I watched this movie three times this past week, once with my wife, once with the commentary and once just by myself to take a few notes. And when I watched it with my wife, she said, what is UHF? So Brian, can you explain what UHF is? That's a great question because it was already in the rearview mirror, like when this movie came out to the point that when they released it in other countries, people said, okay, we got to retitle this film because nobody is going to know what UHF is. And so then Weird Al said, okay, well, we'll title it The Vidiot. But then I guess the marketers decided, well, nobody is going to know if we just call it The Vidiot, that it's the same movie. So we're going to release it in other territories as the Vidiot from UHF. Yeah, he talked about that in the commentary, how mad it made him. It's like they said he couldn't have it. And he says it's a horrible international title. (laughs) But UHF stands for ultra high frequency. And it was kind of a precursor to cable. You got this special antenna that you screwed into the back of your rabbit ears TV And the UHF antenna would give you access to additional channels beyond your usual network stations. I think of it as analogous to 
XM. So just like TVs would have the normal frequency and you have AM and FM radio. So UHF was like, oh, well, now we can open it up to these dozens of channels. And similarly, XM was like, we'll give you hundreds of radio stations. And then like within 10 years, the next technology had come out that was like even more flexible. Like, oh, we have Spotify. You can listen to whatever music you want at any moment. And yeah, you have streaming on Netflix and you have the the digital cable packages that can give you a thousand channels at once and stuff. Yeah, that's a good comparison. And you could kind of say that Blu-rays are the same thing, like this last gasp where it's a cool thing, but it's almost obsolete by the time you open the box. So I have not experienced an actual UHF broadcast. I have some old TVs that have like the space on the back that you would screw in the UHF antenna marked. So that's what it is. The protagonist of the film is named George Newman. He's essentially Weird Al Yankovic playing himself. And he's named after Alfred E. Newman from the Mad Magazine. Oh, interesting. Not the Newman from Seinfeld. No, but we will see a strong Seinfeld connection here. Yes. Have you ever read or watched any of the adaptations of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Dan? No, I have not. Okay, so I'm not sure if Weird Al actually acknowledged it, but I think this is the best adaptation of Walter Mitty, better than either of the other two movies. But... The Secret Life of Walter Mitty is a short story by author James Thurber, and it's about a guy who lives this elaborate fantasy life. Like he's in real life, he's just this boring dude going through his day, but he constantly lapses into fantasy sequences where he's a secret agent or an expert surgeon. And everybody needs him for things. And there's like this through line through all the fantasy sequences where he's like incorporating sound effects that are in his real life. And he's operating on multiple planes all the time. And he cares more about his fantasy self than his real milk toast self. So that's what we've got with George Newman here, where he keeps lapsing into fantasy daydream sequences. And it's an excuse to work in the Weird Al parody gags. So one thing that striking me as I was watching is I thought Weird Al here young, obviously reminded me of someone and I, I couldn't place who I think I know who I was thinking of. I might've been thinking of a couple of people, but I think the way he talks along with a little bit of like the way his kind of face is shaped and the way he's very expressive makes me think of our friend Freak Slice, Paul K. Do you see any of that, Brian? Yeah, I can definitely see that. And he's got kind of the, the longish, crazy hair. Mm -hmm. And the Paul has had some facial hair at different points. I can see that. And he's a musician, too. Right. Shredding some, yeah. So the opening of the movie is the Raiders of the Lost Ark opening where he's going through the jungle, going down into the temple to get the idol, and the boulder comes after him, and you get all those beats. But at every turn, there's like a little gag, something that makes it weird or or quirky and funny, depending on 
your comic sensibilities. <laughs> I think in the commentary on the DVD, it talks about the various reviews that this movie got, and it was not well-reviewed. Like, I think he quotes a review from the Washington Post or something that says, You may find UHF funny if you laugh at anything, such as sudden gusts of wind. <laughs> such a good line <laughs> yeah it the commentary is one of the best commentaries i've heard by the way he's so prepared he has so many anecdotes and specifics and random people from the movie call in so if you like uhf i recommend the commentary for sure it is one that i've listened to all the way through one thing he also said in the commentary about this opening is that he was going to do this anyways but the studio really pushed him to uh, like emphasize the Indiana Jones opening. The reason being that they wanted to use it heavy in their marketing because the third Indiana Jones movie was coming out that same year. And so they wanted to use it in trailers and like do kind of parody marketing, much the same way that Weird Al's Albums usually have like a flagship parody song of something that's just been on the charts the past couple of years. It makes sense. And yeah, so many big movies came out summer of 89, which didn't do any favors to help this one out. Have you looked it up? It's ridiculous. Batman, The Little Mermaid, Do the Right Thing, Indiana Jones 3, Back to the Future 2, When Harry Met Sally, Dead Poets Society. Ghostbusters 2. It was just an utterly ridiculous year. I think Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was that year. Right. So he, I think that's part of the reason the movie flopped is like everybody was going to see everything else. So like, you know, you can only go to the movie theaters so many times or most people do, you know. Right. So you got to decide where you spend your money. That's the thing that's affecting box office takes nowadays. Another thing that he talked about is uh, when they were making the movie, he actually had to turn down something that was really tough for him to turn down. So Michael Jackson was a big fan of his. We know Michael Jackson was just a weird dude in general. And Michael Jackson actually invited him to be his opener on a tour in Europe. And it just so happened that when the studio was willing to let Al film was right when the European tour was going to be. So he did not get to go on tour with Michael Jackson. Wow. I mean, I can picture that. Some of his biggest parodies, especially early on, is Michael Jackson. So that would have been interesting. I, I can see the media in my head of them together. But the idol in the Weird Al sequence is an Oscar. Weird Al creeping through the tunnels to grab an Oscar, which is kind of funny. I don't know that he'll be winning an Oscar anytime soon, although he did just get some Emmys for Weird, although they're not the normal Emmys, so I don't know how much they count, but he did tweet halfway to EGOT. Because, of course, he's gotten Grammys, too, as a longtime musician. Right. Well, one thing he points out is it's recognizably an Oscar, but it also doesn't look that much like the Oscar dude, because apparently... Up until he said it was actually the next year, the Academy was like very strict about letting people do fake Oscars. Like it was this sacred thing. Like you can't do an Oscar. We'll sue you. So they had to make it be Oscar-esque without actually looking like an Oscar. But apparently now they don't care. 
It's kind of like a tiki version of an Oscar, like a simplified form, rudimentary. <laughs> the first time I watched this movie, and again, I was 12, but when they go down into the temple and the Satipo character says, we must not go any further. No one has emerged alive. And then he turns and runs away. He gets to the mouth of the temple and gets flattened by a train. Just a train tears through and, and crushes him. And I thought that was the funniest thing when I was 12. <laughs> and now I watch it and I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> Why does that happen? I don't know. It's kind of funny. Yeah. But like, that's the wavelength you got to be on to love this movie. Right. I do think this opening segment is too long, and that's something he he noted in the commentary too. Is if he did it again, he would do it a little shorter. Because you're like seven minutes in, and that doesn't seem like that long. Like the actual real Indiana Jones opening is twelve minutes long, so you know it's not it's barely half as long. But like it really feels really long because you're like I know these beats, I know the jokes you're doing. I remember from the commentary. There's a part where he's going through and to indicate that there are many hazards in this temple. There's like row after row of road signs, cautionary road signs. And in the commentary, he's like, no, move on too long. <laughs> uh, the boulder comes through and smashes him. And you've got this cartoonishly squashed, like rubber weird owl. And I think in the commentary, he said that he like kept this thing for a long time. The flat owl. He says it's still hanging in his garage as, like, a prize display. <laughs> but we dissolve to him working at a burger joint with his friend and roommate, Bob. Terrific dissolve, by the way. It's from splattered Al to a sizzling burger. <laughs> Masterwork of cinema. But in real life, Weird Al, George Newman, has been drifting from job to job because he, he can't hold down employment since he's spending so much time in daydreams. And for whatever reason, this one really struck me this time, is why does Bob stick with him? Like, Bob doesn't need to lose his job. <laughs> why? Yeah, he throws himself on the pyre. That's a good point. <laughs> but Bob just drifts along from position to position with George. Poverty out of solidarity. <laughs> so the next thing is they're back at their apartment looking through the classifieds. And their apartment is next door to a karate dojo led by Ged Watanabe as Kuni. So one of those outlandish Asian stereotypes that you get in 80s movies. Best known as Long Duck Dong or whatever it is. From 16 Candles. He's really funny in this, by the way. Like, almost every time he appears, he has some line delivery. You know, it's all over the top. And, like, I don't even know if you would say borderline racist. You might not even say borderline. It's not as bad as 16 Candles. No. But it, it, it always made me laugh, yeah. It's generally good spirit. And, yeah, they give him some funny lines, some funny beats. Speaking of... Uh... The, of offensive things in this movie one of the deleted scenes was one of the fake shows he was going to include was those darn homos <laughs> which is like two obviously gay guys in a sitcom we're just running around hitting each other with fly swatters <laughs> i think lucked out cutting that one 
Yeah. Prescient. Those darn homos. <laughs> yeah, once they take over the TV station, a lot of this movie is like little promos for things. Just 30 second gags. Or shorter. So George is looking for work. This perpetual state of like periodic unemployment is testing his relationship with his girlfriend, Terry, who is played by Victoria Jackson, who I think was on Saturday Night Live at some point. She really reminds me of Kristen Shaw, the, both the way she looks and the way that she talks. Uh, Kristen Shaw, uh, who she voices a lot of characters, but she does the sister in uh, Gravity Falls, right? Right. Mabel. And then her other biggest role is Louise in Bob's Burgers. Yeah, I can see that same energy. It's kind of a slightly meeker version of a Kristen Shaw here. Right. But things start turning around for George when his uncle, who's like a compulsive gambler, wins the deed to a UHF station on the edge of town in a poker game. And his aunt encourages the uncle to let George manage the TV station. And it's hard to explain this moment, but at this party, when the aunt and the uncle are talking about this, George is holding this little like Jack Russell Terrier dog. And he's trying to feed it punch with a ladle from a big punch bowl. And the aunt says, George, can you come over here, dear? And Weird Al sets the Jack Russell Terrier down in the bowl of punch, just like absentmindedly. And that moment always makes me laugh. Like this, this poor little dog just plunked into the punch. In the commentary, and this is one of the handful of moments where I actually was not sure if he was joking or if he was serious. He said the the dog was trained and supposed to do more like stunts and like more reaction but he wasn't and they were running out of filming time so he just threw him in the punch bowl <laughs> <laughs> so yeah uncle harvey allows him to be the manager i guess there's some money attached to this i, I don't know exactly where this money is coming from i guess they got sponsorships or something for a little while longer at least and so he can like keep people employed at the station. So he heads out to the U62 TV studio, which is out in this field. They filmed the whole movie in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is quite a location to pick. I'm sure there was some tax incentives or something. And not much of this is still there. Like the where the studio was is like a cement block out in the desert. One of the gimmicks in the commentary is he knows the address for every single place that they shot in Tulsa and what it actually was when they weren't, they hadn't rented it out and stuff. But yeah, that would be quite a road trip. Maybe if there was more uh, actual stuff out there you could visit, it would be interesting. Yep. I just recently did the location tour of Ernest Saves Christmas down in Orlando. I went to visit my brother and we went to the filming sites of Christmas Sleigh, among other things. That's right. And we had talked about that, how there was some YouTuber who had visited those. So wh what did you think visiting some of those sites? It was cool. The train station looks identical. So we went to the, the ticket counter where Harmony Star goes when she's 
contemplating running away with Santa's sack. We went to the museum where a lot of it happens, where Joe Carruthers does his puppet show and then where he meets Santa at the end of the movie. So it was cool. A lot of it is still recognizable. And that same YouTuber did do a UHF tour at one point and couldn't find too much. George Newman sets up shop at the TV station. And at first, you know, it's it's not going great. It's a struggling station. They air a lot of like reruns, Beverly Hillbillies and Mr. Ed, all the shows that were part of the Filmways library that I guess Orion the studio that made this movie had just acquired. But George says, well, let's start making some original shows. Also, he's meeting people who work at the station already. Among them are Fran Drescher. Fran Drescher. Yeah, she's a she's a big deal. And she's funny in this. President of the Screen Actors Guild, right? Yeah, she was in the news a lot because uh, she was the one negotiating it and as it was dragging on, some people were saying that she was being too inflexible and, and trying to get a deal, and it was hurting the actors more than it was helping them. But she eventually ended up getting them a really, really good deal, apparently. Nice. She's very unusual in the way that she speaks. Like her, The way that she speaks basically became a joke in and of itself when she starred in The Nanny. And she's also like really beautiful, too. And... Uh, Apparently, she's really, really funny. Uh, Al says that in the commentary that one of the things he wishes he had done is basically let her improvise a lot more because some of the cast members improvise some, but she's basically just reading her lines, but she's also really funny and he should have let her go a little more wild with it. Right. The Nanny is a good show. I recommend The Nanny. And yeah, the two main jokes are, and I guess it's not jokes, but it's, she's, she's beautiful and she has that gnarly voice. Also, there was a movie at one point starring Fran Drescher called The Beautician and the Beast, which is essentially the same story as The Nanny, except instead of the dude that she's working for being a Broadway producer, he's Joseph Stalin. <laughs> wow. So that was kind of an oddity in the late 90s. There's a recurring bit in the commentary when someone comes on screen that he starts reading his the credits and you never know if it's going to be all actual hits or like a combination of hits and flops or all flops. And so like the cinematographer, he's like, and yeah, he had some great work after this. He worked on children of the corn five and leprechaun four and the carrot head vehicle chairman of the board. And so I thought that was pretty funny, but Fran Drescher, beautician and the beast and also the nanny. <laughs> And another staff member that he runs into is named Philo, who's this mad scientist character who claims to live at the station and like does all the the signal management. One of the only deleted scenes that I actually thought was really funny and should have been included is when Philo meets Terry, the girlfriend, and he <laughs> leans in real close to her and says in a real intense voice, you have the eyes of a dental hygienist. And it's it's pretty funny. She's creeped out because she is a dental hygienist. Mm -hmm. How she, He knew that from her eyes. I don't know. Right, right. And, and Weird Al says they cut some of his stuff because, like, his character is he talks really slowly. <laughs> yeah. You must be a dental hygienist. How do you know that? 
You have the eyes of a dental hygienist. <laughs> Philo, named for Philo Farnsworth, the inventor of television. At least the form that we use today, or did use for a long time. There was like an all-mechanical predecessor to the Farnsworth television, which existed previously. Watch Tech Connections on YouTube for a good history of film and television videos. But George's first attempt at a show fizzles. It's called Uncle Nutsy's Clubhouse, where he's got the like peanut gallery of kids, howdy doody style, sitting in the bleachers, and they're not into his presentation. I will say in Gauntly episode 100, I channeled Uncle Nutsy's Clubhouse, where I wore the jacket and had Ben, my sidekick, be a clown. But their finances are struggling. They're they're failing to thrive and find their niche in viewership. Until they hire this guy named Stanley Spadowski, who was formerly a janitor at the network affiliate locally, Channel 8, which is like the big dog on the TV scene and is run by the villain, R.J. Fletcher, played by Kevin McCarthy, who, had you ever seen this actor before that you could remember? I don't think so. Um, apparently he appeared in a whole bunch of different stuff, but who he really, really reminded me of is Lane Smith, who plays the district attorney in My Cousin Vinny. Oh. He looks like him and he sounds like him. And I was like, oh, that's the My Cousin Vinny guy. And I looked it up. and No, it's not actually him, huh? I can kind of see that. So Kevin McCarthy was the star of Invasion of the Body Snatchers in the 50s, way back in the day. So when he was a younger man. But there's also a Twilight Zone episode where he's the main character. And this may get mentioned in the commentary that in his Twilight Zone episode, he plays this like immortal character who's been kept supernaturally young. And then at the end of the episode, the curse breaks and he starts rapidly aging like Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. And while he's rapidly aging, he looks exactly like he does in this movie. So it's like they, they did it right. Um, one of the only commercials that they have prior to uh, connecting with Spadowski is Crazy Ernie's Used Car Emporium. And the anecdote on this from the commentary is that Apparently, Weird Al had some connections and maybe a friendship with Crispin Glover, the actor from Back to the Future. And Weird Al was like, oh, let's see if we can get Crispin Glover in the movie and send him a script. And it's like, we have a couple roles we're thinking about for uh, that you could maybe play in this movie. And Crispin Glover said, if you're going to have me in there, I got to be Crazy Ernie. That's the only character that I'll play. And they decided not to cast him because they wanted like a specific vibe that was not Crispin Glover in this, in the crazy Ernie character. But Crispin Glover, famously weird dude. That's pretty funny. And as you age, you learn more about history and media, and you start to understand jokes that you didn't before. And sometimes it adds to them, sometimes it detracts from them. Like on the Simpsons episode, there's that scene where 
groundskeeper Willie is being interrogated by the police and he's wearing a kilt and he like spreads his legs and they all grimace, uh, which is a play on a scene from, is it Basic Instinct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I thought that was a funny joke that they just came up with, but no, they they ripped it from a movie. Sometimes when I learned that, that it was just a reference to some other thing that was popular at the time, it it drags drags it down for me. When it was something that I previously thought they had invented whole cloth. And so Crazy Ernie is based on Crazy Eddie, who had a lot of commercials around this time. I'll just say that. It's Crazy Ernie. Weird Al cannot take complete credit for Crazy Ernie. But R.J. Fletcher is this this stick in the mud, this 80s fat cat that you see so often in movies of the time, always taken down, trying to crush the underdog, the person with the true creative spirit. The Ernest goes to camp, and he throws Stanley out of the station for some misunderstanding. Like, he thinks the janitor threw away a file. He didn't actually, but so he he tosses out Stanley, who is played by Michael Richards, Kramer pre-Seinfeld. Michael Richards is so funny in this movie. He is like, by an order of magnitude, the funniest actor here. His deliveries are so good. His physical comedy is just off the charts, hysterical. He's wearing these goofy prosthetic buck teeth and... My God, this is just a terrific, terrific, hilarious comic performance by him. I'm glad you feel that way, because this time watching it with a critical eye for the podcast, I was wondering what is going to hold up. And definitely Richard's performance does. He jumps off the screen and they really let him just like go loose quite, quite a bit. And this he's the one actor that Weird Al said they... They realize basically right away that he it's better if he doesn't read the script. It's better if he just does his own thing, particularly when he ends up on screen, which we'll talk about. Um, so much of that is just totally improvised. <laughs> like even when they're firing him and trying to take his mop away and he's like wrestling around on the floor and <laughs> bouncing off the walls. It's was making me laugh. By the way, the taking of the mop scene really heartbreaking it's like it makes you feel so sad just let the, the janitor keep his mop <laughs> no no that's my mop you don't understand mister that mop was given for me on my birthday when i was eight years old <laughs> we've never been apart the son of rj fletcher rj jr is played by John Paragon, and I never put together before this time that that's Jombie the Genie from Pee-wee. Oh, nice. Not a huge part, but he is the guy who takes the mop. And so Stanley ends up over as the janitor at first at U62, working for George. I think it's interesting how George is, like, the normal character in some regards. I mean, he... He has all these outlandish daydreams, but he's also kind of the everyman, the straight man amidst other weirdos. That is kind of interesting. And Weird Al does talk about that on the commentaries. Like they basically decided to like 
have it be sort of a straight version of the story with an everyman hero who accomplishes something. He says one thing that he kind of replays in his mind, especially in the wake of the commercial failure, like something that might have sparked the movie a little bit more with the audiences is if he had basically gone over the top weird like parody of everything because it does end up being kind of like a a more straightforward arc filled in with silliness as opposed to like a what's that that summer camp movie called uh wet hot american summer where it's the even the very basic story is like a heightened parody of a a teen movie you know i think if you had gone too much further with it it just would have completely atomized and fallen apart that's probably true yeah and I think you actually see his idea of taking something and like making the entire movie a parody version of it when he made Weird, the Yankovic story with Daniel Radcliffe. Although, of course, at that point, that idea had been completely done already with Walk Hard. So it doesn't feel fresh in the way that it should and would have if there was no Walk Hard. Right. That's what I felt watching. And it's like, this has been done. This exists. So... Weird Al, his character, George, he just can't focus on anything. And even working at the TV station, he like falls asleep watching the Beverly Hillbillies. And there's this music video for a Weird Al song just kind of stuck in the movie. This is what derails it most for me. I don't know if you had thoughts about this music video. Yeah, I I can see why you say that. It does feel like the moment they're, where they're like, well... We got to have a proper Weird Al song in there. And so they did that. It didn't really bother me, though, because it is TV themed and there's like a lot of dumb parodies in here. And so this is simultaneously a parody of that song. I want my MTV, but also Beverly Hillbillies, which is kind of in the spirit of the type of TV that they're making fun of. So it's not like totally out of place, but it does derail the momentum. I will say that is like a recurring thing is this. It's not that long of a movie. It's like less than an hour 40 um, but it it does feel like it loses momentum if you hit a gag that's not really clicking for you. And like all of a sudden it's like it's slow for two or three minutes. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is a MTV vibe to this, which would have been timely. So I guess it works. I'm not super familiar with the original Money for Nothing song, but it, this has that same like blocky CGI animation. Right, really influential MTV video. And of course, they're making fun of MTV. Right. But because he fell asleep, he misses Terry's birthday. And he had, like, made plans with her to go and have dinner with her and her parents. So they're just sitting there, stood up. And because of this, she breaks up with him. So now he's in a funk. The TV station is is going bankrupt and he's just been dumped. And so he does this intro to another episode of Uncle Nutsy's Clubhouse. He's like, we're going to have big fun today. We're going to have so much fun that we'll forget about how miserable we are and how we're all going to grow old and die someday. <laughs> I enjoy this delivery. Yeah. And <laughs> the kids in the audience are saying, we want to go home. <laughs> So shut up, you little weasel. Uh, and eventually he just gets fed up and storms off the set. And just as an aside, says that Stanley can take over the show. Stanley, the janitor, Michael Richards. 
and despondently he trudges off to go drown his sorrows at a bar. And he takes his sidekick Bob with him. And I love this bar scene in UHF where they're drowning their sorrows. <laughs> and hard to explain, but this this moment when they get to the bar is like one of my favorite moments in any movie because Bob says, I'll have a beer. Which, okay, for one, I don't think is something you could just say at a bar. They're going to say, what kind of beer do you want? <laughs> There's no, like, house beer, like there is a house rum or whatever. But Bob says, I'll have a beer. And George says, blueberry daiquiri. Just a heartbroken way to say it. Well, it's especially funny because... They mention at least once before this that George never drinks. And I think in real life, Weird Al doesn't drink, but how he doesn't drink. And it's it's funny that like your very first drink without even like really your, your head in the clouds, you just absentmindedly say blueberry daiquiri. Yeah. And it, it says so much in so few words, because I can definitely relate to the feeling that you always have to get the weird thing on the menu. You always have to get the limited time offer even if you're depressed. It's like, you gotta be the funny, weird guy, even at your lowest moment. And so what he orders is this thing that comes out in this huge tiki mug with crazy straws and umbrellas. <laughs> but while they're drinking, they they kind of notice in the corner of their eyes that everybody is glued to the TV screen in the corner of the bar. And then you start hearing what's being said on the TV. And it turns out that Stanley Spadowski, Michael Richards, is just this electrifying TV presence. <laughs> it starts out, he's doing this improv. He's like, oh, so I had this dream that I was a bird with a candy bar head. And there was this weird lizard who was trying to eat my head. And multiple times in the movie he just goes off on saying this nonsense and you do kind of want to hear what he's going to say next <laughs> and then it bleeds into a tribute parody to the what, what does he actually say I'm mad as hell in network right I'm mad as hell I'm not going to take it anymore but here it's tied in with this metaphor that he's making about how life is like a mop and sometimes it gets all full of bugs and hairballs and stuff, and you just got to clean it out. You got to put it in here and, and wring it out. And sometimes a mop is not good enough. You just got to get down there with a toothbrush and scrub. <laughs> and then, yeah, run to a window and say, these floors are dirty as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> and everybody in the bar cheers. I can tell you have a little bit of a sensation that my wife has described before, which, so we, one thing we haven't really said about Weird Al is he's like a canonical member of the stuff that weird middle school boys like. Like every weird middle school boy is going to find Weird Al and like Weird Al, especially if you're a little bit of an outcast. And that would describe Katie's brothers very well. She has three younger brothers she had a lot of Weird Al in her life through the years from her brothers playing Weird Al. And there's so many songs where 
it'll either turn on and she'll say, oh, I didn't know that this was a real song that Weird Al was parodying. Or she'll she'll say, I've heard this song, but I know the Weird Al lyrics so much better. And is that ever something you encounter in your life, Brian? Certainly there's been songs like that. The Safety Dance was one. I was like, oh, Weird Al didn't write this. <laughs> and another one was, well, I guess I had heard it, but it's one where I always hear the Weird Al words is That Way by the Backstreet Boys. He did a song called eBay. I always hear the eBay lyrics. Don McLean, who sings American Pie, apparently really, really loved the Star Wars parody that Weird Al wrote and said he sometimes has to stop himself from singing the Weird Al version when he's performing American Pie live. because he, He'd listened to it so many times and got Weird Al's words stuck in his head. Wow. Now, when you get to that point, that's a tribute. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's not entirely uncommon in the history of Weird Al. Apparently, in the, the music video that we saw, so the guy who's the lead on the Dire Straits song that it's based off of, his name is Mark Knopfler, and he's a great guitarist. And he apparently, like, didn't know who Weird Al was, and but when Weird Al asked him to make fun of his songs, because Weird Al always tries to get permission to do the parodies. And so he looked him up, he listened to some of his music, thought it was funny, went out and bought Weird Al's autobiography and was like sitting in the corner cracking up as he was reading the autobiography and called Weird Al back halfway through reading it and said, all right, you you definitely got to do your parody of our song, but I actually want to be the one to play guitar on the song. So if you go and listen to it, Mark Knopfler is actually the one playing guitar on the recording you hear. Oh, wow. That is cool. Suddenly, Stanley Spadowski's Clubhouse is the talk of the town. It rises to be the number one show on the air, at least in this community that they're in. And so then George has the idea that he's going to make the whole lineup of the TV station original shows and just like give shows to all his friends. I don't know that you would necessarily capture magic in a bottle multiple times like this. Uh, we saw that George's first show didn't work out, wasn't popular. So why are all his other ideas suddenly going to succeed? I think maybe the realistic thing would be just that the one guy would be the star. Uh, but I like the way that it goes, because suddenly you've got Cooney has a show, which is Wheel of Fish, which is <laughs> Wheel of Fortune, except there's a bunch of dead fish strapped to the <laughs> wheel. And according to the commentary, this just smelled so bad. Yeah, they use real fish. They went to a fish market, bought real fish. Apparently they had a designated person to handle the dead fish. And he said they bought it in the morning when the markets opened, brought it in, set up the prop, but they didn't film that scene until the late afternoon. And it was in a warehouse and it was no air conditioning in the warehouse. And he said it was the nastiest smell you've ever smelled. And oh, <laughs> another bonus feature on the DVD is like, parody of the behind the scenes like promo reels that they do and there's a bunch of good lines in there there's some where they talk about uh, weird al being like a dictator on set and stuff but they also have fake things of like um them giving props and like gifts to the people who were extras in tulsa and they have clips of them giving dead fish to kids and like walking away with the dead fish <laughs> i very much enjoy this style of comedy whatever you would call this just like do it for the hell of it or the hell of it there you go 
And yeah, so much of this movie appeals to me because they thought of this weird thing in their head and then went and got the physical thing to put it together. Oh, and I love some of the deliveries in the Wheel of Fish. Red Snapper! That's the kind of fish that he gets on Wheel of Fish. And the delivery is so good. And then they have the the gag, either get your prize or choose the mystery box. And in the mystery box, there's nothing! You stupid! So stupid! Right, his catchphrase, you so stupid! And I like how the whole audience in the stands is encouraging her to pick the box. And then when she does, they're all immediately like, Oh, waving boo. like stinky. Yeah, boo, <laughs> you're an idiot. <laughs> you told you told her. You told her to do that. But that's the the whims of the crowd. And Philo has a show that's like unsolved mysteries and everybody's got these funny weird shows that you see little blips of. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a scene of George laying out the schedule board and slotting in all these other shows that you don't even see. I know you freeze framed that one before, Brian. I did, especially. Uh, thank you for the Blu-ray because I could read it way better than I ever could before. And I, I there were a few little things that I noticed watching it this time that I I hadn't been able to see before. But it's like leave it to Bigfoot and. The Wonderful World of Phlegm, which is like three hours long. <laughs> wonderful World of Phlegm. What could be that wonderful about Phlegm? <laughs> um, another uh, gag show that I like is they have a fake commercial for a place called Spatula World. And every single bit in that fake commercial had me laughing hard. I really like the Spatula City commercial. And yeah, what better way to say I love you than with the gift of a spatula? <laughs> and I mean, it's little things because they talk to like the CEO of Spatula City and you can tell that he, the guy is like reading a teleprompter like you see his eyes darting from side to side. <laughs> and he says, I'm Cy Greenbloom. I loved Spatula City so much that and then his eyes, you know, go normal like he's looking at the camera and he says, I bought the company. <laughs> oh and one other thing about spatula city is so i as i said this was one of my first dvds and we you know my dad went around the big home theater room and strung up the surround sound speakers up in the corners of the room and this was the first movie i watched that actually like messed with the the audio channels the spatial dolby 5.1 and so in the commercial it goes spatula city spatula city and it goes from being all on the left sound channel to all on the right sound channel. So suddenly it's like there's there's voices in the corners of the room. Spatula City! And that blew my mind because I hadn't encountered that before. And now they're cutting into R.J. Fletcher's business. They're becoming the, the talk of the town, the top TV show in town, and it's starting to be a threat. But fortunately for R.J., Uncle Harvey, the guy who holds the station deed, ran into gambling debts. He suddenly owes a bunch of money to a gangster and so needs a bunch of money quickly, which George the Dreamer is not going to immediately have on hand. So RJ offers to the uncle, hey, let me buy you out. I'll own the station and your money woes will be over and I'll kill two birds with one stone because then I can get my rival out of the way. 
So George has to come up with, how do I make $75,000 over the course of two days? Right, to match the offer. Because the uncle says, if you can get the money, then I'll give you the station. So George hits on the idea that he's going to hold a big telethon. Basically sell shares in the station to the community members and earn enough money to pay off the gangster and I guess have it be like a public offering. Like they're going to be a, an IPO or something? Yeah, I don't quite know because they say you can buy shares in it, but I don't know what that means to have shares in it. But I do, it's kind of in spirit with like the let the freak flag fly, let the weirdos in and, and, and have their say with it rather than the hoity-toity Channel 6s, you know? Right. This is the will of the people. This is a community endeavor. I really love when Stanley becomes a star he he gets a higher budget and so you see how his set has progressed and just cutting into the Stanley Spadowski's clubhouse show when he's riding high I love because Michael Richards has this little like fire engine car that he's tearing around the set in he has like these hypno glasses on his face and the bleachers are just packed with people including Dr. Demento, who gave Weird Al his, like, first shot. He gave him his first radio airtime, is up in the crowd. <laughs> While Stanley is driving this car, it's playing this instrumental number, which on the UHF soundtrack is titled Fun Zone. It goes... Which has subsequently been adopted by Weird Al as his, like, de facto theme song. And so the first time that I went to a Weird Al concert, I was blown away when, before Weird Al comes out, the spotlights start scanning over the crowd, and it starts playing... So this is the Al leitmotif. It's in his pinball promo like this is the melody of al oh that's cool just like in that thing you do tom hanks adopted playtone as his own personal brand of things which is the fake record label in that thing you do so fun zone became the yankovic thing right and after stanley makes the lap in his little car <laughs> he plucks this kid out of a vat of oatmeal Who's been he's been digging for the marble and the oatmeal. <laughs> and if you find the marble and the oatmeal, you get to drink from the fire hose. <laughs> and I like that I guess all these rules were established beforehand and people knew that this is what they were <laughs> competing for. And drinking from the fire hose, the kid just gets clocked by the water pressure. <laughs> Knocked off the little rider horse. Yeah, very silly. One of these these bits with Michael Richards, I, I don't think it's this one, but one of them in the deleted scenes, they have like the five minute uninterrupted cut of it. And he's just doing this like nonstop the entire time. And, and very impressive because it was like all one take that they got all this stuff. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> 
yeah a scene where he's digging in a cereal box and finds a prize and then is like talking to the little action figure that came in the box yeah i think that's the one yeah uh you mentioned the fun zone song there's some fun b-real music in this or i don't know what you would call it background music one that made me laugh is i can't remember exactly the context it's used but it's a song called let me be your hog that's very funny right yeah, I love that they have these little music bits. Uncle Harvey is in the pool, and he's got a little boombox playing by the poolside. And it's, I don't even know what genre, I guess rock, metal or something, hair metal. Like hair metal, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's Weird Al singing the song, but you only hear just the littlest snippet of it, so you almost can't tell. He's going, let me be your hog. <laughs> baby, baby, baby. And he's like building and building and it just cuts off because it like the speaker falls in the water or something. But it's just another instance of like, this is an idea that somebody had and then they had to put the resources together to make it. Oh, one other show I got to shout out. Another show that George hosts early on is called Town Talk, which is essentially Jerry Springer. And as the station grows in profile, it gets more and more sensational. But the very first guest on Town Talk is this comedian that Weird Al is friends with named Emo Phillips, who is very much a presence on, like, the Weird Al show, that short-lived TV show. And he's in Weird also. He plays Salvador Dali in Weird. <laughs> yeah, because there's a scene in that where, of course, you got to have the celebrity cameos as as other celebrities like we saw in Walk Hard. But it was, like, mostly unusual celebrities. So people like Tiny Tim and Pee Wee Herman and stuff. Jack Black was in it as Wolfman Jack. Jack Black, who is also in Walk Hard, as Paul McCartney. So I want to see the movie where he plays both. Oh, the Jack universe, yeah. Yeah. That's the guy from, what's that movie called? American Graffiti, right? Wolfman Jack? Right. Yep. The guy who's got the growly voice. I do think some of the fake the fake shows are, are some of the most fun of the movie. The one where the guy tosses the poodles out the window. I can't remember why, but like the, the punchline is he's throwing poodles out a window. <laughs> and then they have a, a show that's called Strip Solitaire. And it's like an ugly old guy. And there's a whole audience around him. And he's just hunched over looking at his cards. But he's like in his underwear and suspenders. And that's it. It's pretty funny. <laughs> And the bit with Emo Phillips is he's a shop teacher and he says, there are a few simple principles you must bear in mind when operating a sophisticated piece of machinery like this. And Weird Al has to tell him it's a table saw. But then he starts operating the table saw and is like continuing to talk to Weird Al. And just the way this is put together, because the camera like cuts to a close up of their faces as he's talking and pushing this wood through the table saw. And the next thing is he's cut off his thumb and blood is just spraying everywhere. And I I like his timing, too, his comic timing, because he just carries on like everything is normal, even though comically blood is spraying everywhere. And then the punchline is, huh, is my face red? <laughs> As he's just drenched in this 
blood. Apparently, another punchline they had considered for that was having Emo Phillips say, and I think you see this in the deleted scenes, say, one thing my shop teacher told me is if you lose an appendage, you should keep it in your mouth to keep it warm. And he tries to, he puts the fake thumb in his mouth and tries to continue the show, like with the <laughs> thumb in his mouth mumbling. Now over here. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this movie, I think, falls into the annoying voice or just the silly voice territory. There's like silly character names. There's silly voices. And so it depends how you feel about those sorts of things, how you're going to resonate, how you're going to vibe with this film. I will say my wife, who hates silly voices, was not too bothered by this. So. Okay, good. But like, you've got a Stanley Spadowski, you've got a Pamela Finkelstein... So, silly names as much as silly voices. Although, he says in the commentary, a lot of the names, even some of the silly ones, are actually from people he knew in real life, based off of those. Like, Finkelstein was a friend from when he was a kid, or something like that. That's cool. But to make the money quickly, they put together this telethon. So, they're going to broadcast all day and night, and do the, like, PBS pledge drive. They're taking phone calls, standing by to take your calls of people donating money, and they're going to gin up this money to pay off the gambling debt and then officially own the station. And Stanley is going to be like the anchor of this broadcast. Going to be on the air all through the night and doing his Stanley thing. But RJ hires these thugs to abduct Stanley so that he can't work his magic. And and they take him from out back of the station. And then U-62 has to fall back on these, like, filler acts that we haven't seen before. And I love every time they cut back to the station and the people are bored by these weird acts. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, why love the other weird acts and not love these weird acts? But it's stuff like there's an Uncle Sam on stilts and there's all these guys dancing who their stomachs have faces drawn on them and their heads are covered <laughs> with these giant top hats. And it's all these things that you see for like two seconds and your lizard brain just says, what the hell is that? <laughs> And there's extended versions of some of those in the deleted scenes. Like, some of the weird guys they have are apparently this comedy duo from L.A. I assume you're talking about the Kipper Kids. Yeah, the Kipper Kids. Who have, yeah, these long noses and chins. And I think they made a good decision because you see them for like a second and a half and they're just going, <laughs> And it's enough to tell you that maybe... <laughs> You don't need to see more of it. <laughs> like, what? What was that? And then in the credits, they're just the Kipper kids. <laughs> and then for a little while, it's like a gangster movie. There's this act where there's the thugs who are keeping Stanley hostage. And one of them looks and sounds like Al Pacino as Michael Corleone. He's not Al Pacino, obviously. I love about this bit though that you get more of stanley improvising which always makes me laugh and he's annoying the captors because he never shuts up <laughs> I'm like i got a guy out here who would love 
to cut your tongue out. So please <laughs> shut up. And he'll just launch into like singing the Bonanza theme song. And they like drag him away and lock him in a closet. And even locked away in the darkness, he's still just making noise. He's like, hey, my blindfold fell off. You should probably come and fix it. Whoa, my shirt glows in the dark. <laughs> and yeah, wa watching him make noise and the guys around him get annoyed still holds up. Still is very funny. Well, then there's a whole chase sequence with him, like running through the building and they have like some actual budget and blocking to it. Like there's a glass window that, that they jump through. But the whole time it's just Michael Richards just being his wacky self and like bouncing off walls and flipping over desks and stuff. And it's really good. Although I agree, this section kind of goes on a little long here. It's a, it's, it's a little bit of padding. <laughs> but he gets his mop back. That's what gives him the like Samson powers to bust out of his bonds. And then he's trashing everybody with his mop. Although they do eventually recapture him. Luckily, the broadcast engineer Philo has had the foresight to wire the Channel 8 headquarters with cameras. And so he finds out that Stanley has been abducted and he tells George about this. And, you know, they, they could just like call the police or even just call the other station and say, like, the jig is up. We see you have our guy. But instead, George runs over there alone, runs off through the night, and it's an excuse to dissolve into another fantasy sequence, which is a Rambo parody. So you got Weird Al with this big, muscular, fake torso being Sylvester Stallone. And I like some of the bits here, because he he's tromping through the jungle to save Stanley, who's like locked in a cage. And all the gangsters from the movie, all the villains pop up in military uniforms and they're shooting at him. And like the guns can never hurt him, even at point blank, they just do nothing to him. And then he can pick up like a bow and arrow and fire back and it instantly kills the enemies. Yeah. And he has like a gun and he like just turns the gun in an arc and like it does... Uh cutaways to stock footage of like big helicopters blowing up and stuff and <laughs> he like catches a bullet in his mouth and he spits it out and it shows another scene of like a of a helicopter crashing or something pretty good and he escapes in this sequence with stanley on a helicopter that they find there's like a little kiosk that says helicopter rides for twenty dollars and i like that energy it has a feeling like a dream or something to me like, that's the kind of thing you would say, oh, I need a helicopter now. And there's just a guy standing there who's selling helicopter tickets. Right. <laughs> but the fantasy dissolves back into reality when he storms into this hideout that the, the gangsters have Stanley at. And they've got like a gun pointed at George's head. And so it looks for a moment like it's going to be curtains. But there's a deus ex machina because suddenly Cooney and his karate students bust out of the supplies closet and they get to yell supplies in their Japanese accent 
this is the one gag that always stuck with me that I really remembered the first time. And I still would mutter in my head if I would walk past the supplies closet. Supplies! <laughs> so at the last hour, everybody gets to return in triumph to the TV station. And for whatever reason, this little musical bit is not on the soundtrack. And I really want just this piece isolated. This, like, victory riff. Because it goes... And it just seems really triumphant. And everybody carries Stanley. He's like in this little Jeep. And they carry him out of the Jeep on their shoulders back through the crowds, like crowd surfing back to the TV stage. And this is one of my favorite moments of we are winning in any movie. One thing that um, he said on the commentary is that in general, the distribution of responsibilities was that uh, Jay Levy wrote like the narrative portion and Weird Al wrote the gags, the jokes. But one thing that Weird Al was really insistent upon for the actual story was that he, he said he always hates it when the villains don't get sufficient comeuppance for being villains. They just kind of discard him and let the hero be victorious without showing the villain getting his just desserts. And so there's so much of like starting basically now of the the guy from the other studio, whatever his name is, one bad thing after another happening to him. Yeah, they really pile on him. I mean, he is pretty nasty, but like uh, Philo had the camera set up. And so there's a scene where... Behind closed doors, RJ is talking trash about the community. Oh, they're pus brains. They're mindless sheep. And so then, while this drama is playing out with the thugs, and RJ Fletcher is distracted trying to, like, pay off the gambling debts, Philo hijacks the signal of Channel 8 and uses Fletcher's own channel to broadcast these insult remarks against the community and so because of that like he can't broadcast anymore channel 8 folds and like an old lady kicks him in the nuts and it yeah it goes on and on it's a little over the top but the best part of it though is there's a few characters who are like running gags in this movie who are just kind of off to the sides one of whom is this bum who's always asking for spare change. And the gag early on is that like, okay, so he'll he'll take your change and then he'll give you bills in return. So like, he's not taking your money. He just needs change for a dollar. <laughs> uh, but it builds to something because RJ is like trying to slight the homeless man by giving him just a penny. And he even says, don't spend it all in one place. But... The, the bum has, like, an over-the-top reaction to the penny. Oh, thanks, mister! Thanks a lot! <laughs> and you think maybe, oh, he's, like, being sarcastic in return. But then it turns out when the chips are down and they're only $73,000 towards their $75,000 goal, and they don't know at the last minute if they're going to really make it all the way to the finish line, the bum shows up and... He has $2,000 to complete the the full pot. Triumphant. 
Right. We learn he walks up to RJ and says, Oh, mister, you're the guy who gave me that mint condition 1955 double dye Denver mint penny. That was worth a fortune. And if you look it up, there really is such a thing as a 1955 double dye penny. The effect is that there are two Lincolns on the face side of the coin. This was parodied on The Simpsons. At one episode, there's a kissing Lincolns coin. Uh, it's not like that. They're not facing each other. It's like they're facing the same way, but kind of back to back or back to face. And anyway, they didn't make them at the Denver Mint. So slight misstatement but mostly real, that this is a very valuable penny. He used it to hoist the villain with his own petard, and suddenly the last bit falls into the money pot. The sign ticks up to $75,000. They have this big, like, ship sign that says, Save Our Station, and it's got all the digits counting up. And when they fall away and it says $75,000, there's this shower of fireworks into the sky and the music plays and they just have like the whole populace of Tulsa, Oklahoma standing around cheering that they've, they've won. They own the station now. Just another moment of this was a lot of pieces they put together to achieve this moment. The guy who plays the, the bum one thing that gets mentioned in the commentary, and then I had to look up to confirm if there's some nuance to it, but his main claim to fame, that actor, is that he was the first person to play Bozo the Clown in a, a nationally syndicated version of the show. Now, his dad was actually the first one to play Bozo the Clown in any capacity, but that was like apparently just on a radio show or something like that. But for the first nationally syndicated one, that guy played Bozo the Clown. Wow. I never knew that before. If it was in the commentary, I probably heard it before. Definitely did not remember. That's cool. So over the course of their rise to fame, Terry has kind of come around, forgiven George somewhat for being so flighty. And in this big moment of victory, she approaches him in the crowd and says, you know, those daydreams you're always having well from now on could i be part of them sometimes george says from now on you'll be in all of them and they have a gone with the wind tribute where like you got the big painted sunset backdrop and the camera pulls out is this swooning music plays the credits even say tara theme belongs to mgm or whatever but this is an odd choice, I think, because Gone with the Wind definitely doesn't have a happy ending. Like, this is not the ending of Gone with the Wind, whereas the opening was the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is not the way Gone with the Wind ends. Uh, Rhett abandons Scarlet and says, I don't give a damn. That that whole movie is a downer. Uh, you said you haven't watched Gone with the Wind, right? No, I haven't seen it. No, I'm familiar with it at a high level, but I have not seen it. But And it's four hours long and just a lot of bad stuff happens to Scarlet. And yet you can't really feel bad because she's not a good person either. So I definitely I, I need just, to catch it sometime. I just don't know where to come down on that one. Worth a watch. Important in cinema history. 
crazy that MGM was putting out that one and Wizard of Oz in the same year. And like Victor Fleming was directing both. Yeah, same director. Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz, same year, same studio. That's crazy. Yeah, like they had all the color cameras that were around. Yeah. But that's UHF from 1989. Oh, and as the credits roll, you get this big UHF theme song where he's kind of laying out the mission statement of the channel. He says, make yourself a TV dinner. Press your face right against the screen. We're going to show you things you ain't never seen. I really like this theme song. You should watch the music video, which of course pulls in like visual references from a bunch of MTV music videos of the day, along with clips of the movie. Just kind of a good congealing of the various elements and tropes that are in this blender. So what do you think, Dan? You taught me the word... I actually don't even know how to pronounce it because you wrote it in a review and I had to look it up, but I've used it since. It's like P-A-E-A-N. Oh, I think it's payin', isn't it? I'm, I'm not sure. I've seen it written by you, but it's like an honorific tribute, just like an over-the-top praise fest. Yeah. P-N maybe? I don't know. But yeah. Are you, you bring that word up because you feel as if that's what this episode has been so far? I, I feel like that's what I've done so far. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe I haven't overlooked too many of the shortcomings. I think we did at least mention times when it was slow or too random and said things may not gel with everybody who's watching. I have a few more bits I want to throw in here. So uh, the guy who plays Uncle Harvey, so the guy who gives him the station... Weird Al wanted to cast Danny DeVito, but knew that he would be too expensive. And so he said, get me Danny DeVito, but cheaper and maybe taller. (laughs) Yeah, I could see Danny DeVito, but I like that they picked so many people who like weren't big names because then you could have some who then became big names. A couple other things. So Tom, Tom Lehrer, who you've brought up before. He apparently really liked this movie and he became something of a friend to Weird Al. And the line he really liked was, people like that should be put to sleep. (laughs) Which is, I forget who says it, but I think one of the guys who works at the TV station says it, right? Yeah, RJ RJ Fletcher says it after he fires Stanley. People like that should be put to sleep. (laughs) That's interesting. Because I was going to say that the crazy Ernie thing, how it's pulling in something from a very specific moment in pop culture history feels very Tom Lehrer to me. It's like listening back to the 1965 Tom Lehrer albums. Like there are things that I have to go and look up. Okay. What was Vatican two? You know, a couple other tidbits that I found really interesting. So there's a a cameraman for UHF. Who's a, a small person. Apparently this dude had been in show business for over 60 years by the time he appeared in UHF. His first credit was 1926, which is insane. Wow. Yeah, Billy Barty. I mean, if you are a person of diminutive stature, you've got a career in show business built in. You've always got that option, whether you're, you know, Wee Man or Peter Dinklage. 
It's like that door is open to you. Or the the guy on Seinfeld. But Billy Barty, who is in UHF, uh, was like the original voice of Figment, the dragon at Epcot. Oh, wow. He pops up or did. So do you know who the they almost cast for Terry? I don't remember. You're going to have to tell me. Ellen DeGeneres. That would have been different. Yeah, it would have a been. A young Ellen DeGeneres as uh, the love interest would have been. Would have played a little differently, I think, in 2023. <laughs> it's interesting, though. I mean, I can kind of picture it. She kind of, like, it. clearly part of the thing for casting women here was, do they talk in a funny way? Because all of them do, and Ellen DeGeneres does too, so. And David Spade read for a couple of parts, but they, he ended up not getting cast. I could see David Spade as Bob. Which one's Bob again? The sidekick character. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because he, he kind of does that. He plays the, the sort of straight man. Although Weird Al is already sort of a straight man, as we talked about. Right. But, There's yeah. a lot of characters in this movie. I don't know if you necessarily need all the characters, but generally they do have some funny bits each. A few more things in here that I'm just picking some of the interesting ones here. So uh, this one is actually kind of sad. Apparently the guy who plays the guy who throws the poodle out the windows, he's a Hispanic guy. Apparently he actually got killed in a drunk driving accident during the filming of it. And there were, he was going to be in a couple more scenes, but they ended up writing him out of those scenes. They thought about like recasting him and filming all of the stuff with him, but they couldn't bear to like completely remove the footage of him. Trinidad Silva. And the movie at the end says dedicated to Trinidad Silva. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Apparently the test uh, previews for this were really, really good. And like the audiences really liked this movie. And to the point that Orion thought that this was going to be a big hit. And they started talking him up as like the future of Orion Pictures. And they were starting to like say, you know, once this makes the big bucks, we want to sign you to like a big multi-film deal. You're going to be the next Woody Allen. And again, a reference that plays a little different in 2023. But, you know, Woody Allen was cranking out a movie a year for 50 years. So... Um, that would have been a big deal, but obviously that ended up not working out. And this was basically the nail in the coffin that Orion went out of business afterwards, which is part of the reason it was so hard to get a copy of it because Orion didn't exist anymore to print it. Yeah, he's got an anecdote on the DVD, which I don't know if this is true or hyperbole, but he says, I would wake up to a bowl of strawberries by my bed every morning. Then when the movie bombed, no more strawberries. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. He clearly had written out some of the things he said in advance because they were very uh, well articulated. One of the reviews he read made apparently made fun of his Art Garfunkelicious hair, which is really just a great turn of phrase. <laughs> There's a, a gag at the end where the guy who plays the weird AV nerd, Philo, ends up being an alien or something like that. And it's done by... The Kyoto Brothers. Yeah, the Kyoto Brothers, who we talked about in the Discord recently, but did Large Marge and did some other stuff. Right. They did the Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which then became the Trolls in Ernest Scared Stupid. So, yeah, they did like claymation-y type stuff. And then the commentary ends with uh, Weird Al basically recounting an anecdote from his friend, or maybe it was from a newspaper article or something, but about how like he was really sad about the movie bombing, but 
what this newspaper article said there that, that his friend sent him said is um, if you review a comedy as a critic, the best way to do it is you should turn your back to the screen and just watch if the audience laughed. And in the years since, that's brought a lot of cheer to Weird Al. He said some of his fans have come up to him and said it's his favorite movie ever. Hey, and that's uh, the thing that's most meaningful to him, the biggest compliment he could get. So I thought that was like a nice kind of uh, grace note to end the commentary on. And like thinking back that even if it didn't make a lot of money, that sometimes movies stick with you and have an impact on their audience that is bigger than the box office would suggest. And I think that fits here. Right. And I think it's cool that he got big enough with the music that he could then try out other media. Right. Couple good things. I mean, I've hit most of them so far. Really like that Michael Richards, who, in the vein of Woody Allen, in the vein of a few names we dropped tonight, not the most spotless record for Michael Richards, but that they, they let him improvise. Great physical comedy here. And... I like the energy overall of this movie. The feeling that you can use this outlet to air your weird ideas and they might find a foothold via local television. Do you have any UHF swag, Brian, beyond the DVD? No, not really. It would be cool. I don't know that there's any official merchandise. At one point, I made like a t-shirt, like a screen print t-shirt with images. That's about it. Well, for me, if I were to get one thing, it would be there's this t-shirt that Michael Richards wears throughout the movie that says Enchanted Mesa on it. I don't know if that's a reference to something, but I want that t-shirt. That's what I would get. I'm glad you brought that up. I meant to make a note. That was one of the things watching the Blu-ray that I had never seen before was you could read Stanley Spadowski's t-shirts. And yeah, most of the movie, it's Enchanted Mesa and it's like a red shirt. And then later on, he's got a yellow shirt during the telethon that says some other like tourist attraction. And I definitely want to look those up. But yeah, that's that's all I got. Fun movie. Great. Thank you for sharing it with us. I'm glad we got to to celebrate it. Oh, yeah, I'm glad. It's the birthday card. You get to throw anything on. I mean, any week we get to throw anything on that we want. It's the power of the movie selector, but you feel even less shame on the birthday. So, Dan, is it good, though? All right. Is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So I guess I will go first. Is UHF good? And I'm going to go ahead and give this a six out of eight, a very good. It does drag from time to time. And I think that's a byproduct of the fact that it's so built around sketches. And any movie that's just built around like, here's a two minute gag, here's a two minute gag, is going to have some stuff that works and some stuff that doesn't. And especially anything that's like deeply invested in parody I feel like parody is something that doesn't necessarily always age well and doesn't replay well necessarily. Like the fun of it is in, oh, I'm familiar with this thing. Now I'm seeing something that's referencing it, but that kind of doesn't really have much depth to it. And there's one or two times where I feel like this is just pointing at the thing and saying the thing and that's it. But I actually do think it's genuinely funny and genuinely creative with the gags. 
uh, for much of the time. Terrific energy on the delivery and just enough of a sort of triumphant story stringing it together where you you care about what's happening beyond the gags themselves. And you're sad when they're sad and you're cheering when they're cheering. And I think a lot of that comes down to the cast and their chemistry, like Michael Richards losing his basic human dignity when they take the mop. And then, oh, just how great it feels then when he gets his mop back. And then when he gets a trophy for him being the best janitor and he's like all choked up, it's like a that's Phil's boy moment. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm so happy. Like that's that, that's such a, a big win because uh, even despite being a silly movie, it's kind of invested you in that as that being the structure of it works well. And there's just something about the Weird Al humor that is kind of unique, but also feels like timeless and and something that isn't that idiosyncratic. I mean, it's got some quirkiness to it. And yet there's not too many things that kind of hit in the same way with the same energy and the same like sort of almost chaotic, anarchic spirit, but still not especially mean-spirited. Sometimes it can be easy for things like this to be just kind of nasty all the time. It's got a little bite to it, but it's overall, you feel good when the movie is done. You don't feel like too many people or things have been aggressively degraded in the film. And I just think it works as a comedy vehicle. And I like that it's like a special Weird Al thing. And it's just got a good energy and spirit about it. So for me, it's a very good, Brian. What about you? I'm actually also going to give it a six out of eight. Whoa. Very good. I know it tops my chart, but looking at it with a critical eye, the pacing is wonky. The gags, there's a lot of gags, and you're going to feel differently about different gags. Some I really like, some I liked more when I was 12 and exposed to them for the first time. But I really like the message, which is not unique among 80s films. So many 80s movies, it's the underdog against the corporate masters. But I like how this one does it. As you said, you empathize with the characters. When they all come back to the station and Stanley gets carried in on the shoulders, I I love it every time. It, my heart soars. I've said it probably five times, but... Much the same way that I like The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, I like that somebody had the idea, okay, now in this section of town talk, George is going to, quote-unquote, blow the lid off Satanism, and you just have a half second where there is a devil sitting on the stage, and Al throws a glass of water in his face and says, <laughs> you make me sick! <laughs> and then the result is, in the credits, you have Satan. As one of the lines. <laughs> one of the credits. Or or Gandhi or Weasel Boy. And yeah, just that they threw so many things at the wall and some of them will stick for you and some won't. I really love. It's like a testament to the power of film. And maybe that seems hyperbolic, but to me it's definitely true. It's what got me making a public access TV show for nine years. The idea that you can like throw your throw your visual ideas out there like a message in a bottle and hope that somebody finds them resonates with me. And yeah, I mean, Al's got his mentor in the stands cheering him on even here early in his career. And you see what he's done since with uh, his last album, like 
was the number one album on the Billboard charts because they kind of played the system. I mean, they like worked into it with a string of viral music videos and released it at like a low point for album releases. But Weird Al has had a pretty impressive career. Absolutely. He certainly has outlived many of the musicians that he's parodied. And it's cool that he can like sing in so many different styles. Like that's your horoscope for today is like legitimately a ska song or he can channel the talking heads to do dog eat dog. I I think that's even more impressive is when it's not just changing up the lyrics, but like channeling the persona of somebody and making a song in their style Mm -hmm. is, is quite a talent. So those are my thoughts. You know, it's, it topped my list. I'm not going to give it the masterpiece rating. I don't know how you will feel about it, but I love it. And it has certainly had an influence on my life. All right. Good one. We did it, Brian. We saved channel 62. (laughs) U62, be there. Well, thank you for watching it, Dan. Thanks for being a part of another birthday. Thank you, listeners. Absolutely. Always a joy. Is this a movie that you can just play in your head, Brian, from start to finish? Pretty close. You've talked about some of those movies, so. There's a few. Raiders of the Lost Ark is definitely one of them, and this one is is close if it's not there. So I think for our next episode, if we can get the logistics just right, we're going to have my brother Will on for a guest episode. And then afterwards, we're going to have a theme month because we usually have a theme month around February. So that is what we are looking forward to. And I think what we're going to talk about for Will's episode is is his own version of A Violent Ends, which is an episode format that we've used in the past, where you have two films that have similar premises, but end up going very different directions, usually one of them kind of dark. And in this case, the two movies that we're going to discuss are Yojimbo, which is a Japanese film. I believe it's Kurosawa. I'm not 100% sure on that. And then Support Your Local Sheriff, which is a comedy film that happens to have been my dad's favorite film. And um, at least that's what he cited as his favorite film. I think also uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, really liked it. And so we'll obviously probably talk a little bit about my dad. That was the focus of our episode uh, several weeks ago. Thanks, Dad, when we talked about parenthood. Um, who he recently passed last summer. But yeah, so uh, Violent Ends. So with with my brother Will, first time that he's had his own proper guest episode since he returned from Japan, where he's lived for six years. So should be fun. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Have you picked out what the theme month is going to be yet? I've narrowed it down. I, I, I think I know what I'm going to do, but I'm not so locked in on it that I'm going to reveal it just yet. Okay, well, I'm excited to find out. Hopefully you are too, listeners. Well, happy birthday, Brian. Hey, thank you. You're 100,010 or whatever it is. Right. And and you're sitting, or you will be soon. When you turn 36, you'll be a, a 100,000 and 100. There you go, yeah. So you got that to look forward to. And listeners, join the Discord so that you can revel in the extended birthday playlist. That's right. And that you can find that at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. So thanks, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.